All right. Well, um, it's my turn here to teach uh, out of John chapter 11. Um, and we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 45 through 57, uh, where we see that Jesus is wanted. And then in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see Jesus is worshipped. So Jesus is wanted, verses 45 through 57, and Jesus is worshipped. John 12, verses 1 through 8. We'll go ahead and read the passage. Then many of the Jews had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. You can see their concern. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together and one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do, they, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spinknard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the, his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Again, so here we have in, in John 11... Jesus is wanted, man. He's wanted by the religious elite. And in verse 45, it says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Now, I'm kind of envious of the one who taught John chapter 11 because it's really one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. It really is. Because it goes into, into Lazarus and what he experienced. And I'll cover a few of those things in a moment. But the scripture says many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things that Jesus did 
believed in him. And some, for some of us, we may be sitting here going, well, it's not hard to believe in the things that Jesus did. I mean, we read all these things, but you have to understand they were living in real time. And notice, not all believed in him, but many did. And as we move through the passage, those who didn't believe or refused to believe, they head off to the religious leaders and later to devise a plan to put him to death. Now, what about the many? Who are the many that are seeing Mary? In the previous section, Lazarus had fallen gravely ill. And Mary and Martha, you know, they, hey, they said, you know what? Let's send word for the master. Let's, let's send word to Jesus that he may come as soon as possible because of the severity of Lazarus' illness. The man's going to die. And they know this illness is severe. But Jesus does something interesting, doesn't he? If you guys have been following along, he delays. He purposely is late. And Lazarus ends up dying And by the time he arrives. Lazarus, when Jesus appears, has already been interred. And then we're told in verse 19 of the same chapter that many were there to comfort Mary and Martha over their brother's death. Notice here in verse 19 of chapter 11, it says, And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And notice verse 31, it tells us when Martha told Mary Jesus had called for her, the Jews who were there comforting her thought she was so bereaved over the death of her brother. What did they do? She got up and left. They thought, well, man, she is so overwhelmed with grief that she took off to the tomb. So they got up and followed her. And folks, this isn't just a few people. This is a lot of people. A lot of people. Again, it says here in verse 31, Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out and followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. And so they, there they are. They follow her out. This family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus must have been influential because we know Jesus would often retreat there to Bethany. There was something endearing about this family. As a matter of fact, when the crowd sees Jesus weeping over this whole scene, what do they say in verse 36? Look, look, see? See how he loved him. They didn't say, how could he love him? That guy was a rat. Doesn't he know what kind of character this man is? But that's not the case, is it? They deduce that they, this guy must have really loved Lazarus. That this guy had some type of impact in his life. And take note what else the crowd says. Verse 37. It says, And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? They were not ignorant to some of the things Jesus had done. And no doubt there were some there who had only heard of the things Jesus did. And I have no doubt there were some there who witnessed some of the signs Jesus performed. Remember, he had restored the sight, he had restored the deaf, he had restored the leper, and no doubt many of them were there or somehow, in some way, impacted directly or indirectly by Jesus. And the story hasn't changed, right? 
I think everybody here in the room has been impacted by this man. We're all here because we heard of this man, Jesus. Somehow, some way, there's people in your life, you go, how is that guy different? What makes him tick? Why? What makes him so different? Then we begin to inquire, you find out this, this person knows Jesus. Right? So the story hasn't changed. And we're drawn in. Do you know who Jesus is? Or are you kind of on the periphery? You're on the fringes. You're still sitting out there. Now this crowd came to Martha and Mary to comfort them. And this crowd was probably made up of close relatives and friends. These were folks from all different vocations and different levels of life. These were Jews who lived under the cruelty of Rome. These folks, they saw the phoniness. They saw the exploitation of the religious leaders in their life. So you can imagine it was a very difficult time. You know, who do you point to when you want to talk about God? Those people, they're phonies. They're exploiting the people. They're not real. They're not genuine. So where is God? And then death comes. It comes to everybody. And that's the scene here. Death has come. And I think there are many there who truly love this family. And I think they extend an incredible amount of grace and love to their friends. And here they are reciprocating that love. Just as much as they've been impacted by this family, they're there to comfort them. They're trying in some way, some form or fashion to help relieve the grief. And that's not always easy, is it? You ever try to talk to someone who's lost somebody in their life? What do you say? How could you even begin? And sometimes, you know, it's just about, I got to take that step and just show up and see how the Lord will use me. But I want to be there because I love them. Even though I may not know what to say, at least my presence is there just to somehow communicate to them that I love them. Again, it's not easy. What do you say to someone who they lost permanently? Because you know you'll never see that person again. I remember when I uh, uh, buried my dad. You know, I'm just thinking right now, when I went to go bury him, I remember staying at the foot of the, uh, of, uh, uh, the casket as he lowered him down. I remember thinking, I will never see him again on this side of heaven. There's a permanence about that. There's a hole. What do you say? And there they are with all the burdens of their own lives, empathizing with Mary and Martha. Lazarus had been dead for four days, and those four days must have felt like an eternity for Martha and Mary. Four days of people coming in and out, extending their condolences. Four days of sorrow. Four days of deep pain. And then Jesus arrives in the scene. And I bet when Jesus arrives... All eyes are fixed on him. I know I would be. Here he is. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? How is he going to respond to the situation? How is he going to fix the situation? Because after all, there isn't much he can do right now, right? Lazarus has been dead four days. It wasn't like he just died a few hours ago. He's dead. Four days go by. He's too late. All hope is lost. No, folks. Jesus is always on time. He always is. Even in tragedy. He will use this tragedy for their benefit that they might believe 
that God the Father sent him. Notice here in verse 41 through 44, it says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe what? That you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And when he, and he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, Loose him and let him go. Lazarus is brought back to life. Now we have the luxury, again, of knowing the story, right? We have that luxury. We know, oh, well, yeah, he, he could do this. It's not a problem. But we're not there. We don't see the grief. We don't see the anguish. We're not there. Again, they've been grieving with the family for four days. And then they go to the tomb. And then Jesus requests that they roll away the stone from the entrance in verse 49. And even Mar- Martha, she's reluctant, isn't she? She's just, Lord, no, 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 no. My brother's been dead four days. Uh, surely there must be a stench. And, and do you really want this? I mean, come on, Lord. I really don't want to experience the smell. I don't want to remember my brother that way. Can you blame her? Dead people don't come back to life in in our world either, do they? And I could just envision the crowd and the tension in the air. What does this guy intend to do? And I could just see Martha and Mary in my mind's eye. They remember the moment their brother died. I mean, could you imagine... They remember they have been caring for him. The guy's dying. And then he does die. And they are there. And in their world, you didn't embalm a body. They buried the body immediately. So you can imagine they began the process to bury him. They understood the decay process. And then what they would do is take the body, lay it on a cloth, a long cloth. And begin to pour spices over the body. Then they would wrap the body like a burrito. They would start to cinch it. In different places. And they would put the spices. Because they knew. It would knock down the odor. So they'd make sure they would just prep the body. With plenty of spices. I can just imagine what it must have been like. For those sisters. Seeing their brother placed in the cave. As they carried him there. Placing him there in the tomb. Knowing that in a year. They would go back, take the bones, and place those bones in an ossuary. An ossuary is basically just a, a box. And they would normally do that because if you had a, a, a family tomb, well, you needed the space, so you, you put everybody in a small box. Make it more efficient. And Jesus says, remove the stone. Remove the stone. Again, what was that like for Martha and Mary? And what about the crowd? You know, we, we think about... About them, but what about the crowd? Could you imagine you're sitting there and you're seeing the anguish on their face, and then he says, "Remove the stone." And you're thinking, "Okay, what's he going to do?" Again, imagine you don't know all this. What does he plan on doing? Is he going to go in there? Is he going to defile himself by touching the body? What is he going to do? And that's our focus tonight. What is the crowd? The people who are following. What, what's their reaction? And then they hear Jesus say, "Lazarus." Come forth. Notice, as we look at the story, Jesus didn't go inside. 
He didn't manipulate the remains. He didn't lay hands on Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Do you think the crowd expected him to call out Lazarus? I don't think so, Lucy. I don't think so. Now, again, what was that like for Lazarus? What was that like for him? Lazarus' body had already begun the decomposition process. He wasn't there asleep. He wasn't comatose all those days in the tomb. And how do I know? He was still in his grave claws when he came out. That's how I know. Because if he was alive, I assure you, those grave clothes wouldn't have been on him. And Jesus wouldn't have commanded that they remove him. He had been dead four days. And where did Lazarus go when he died? I've said this to you before. He was in paradise. Luke 16, 19. He was there at Abraham's bosom. And by the way, it's not the same Lazarus that you find in Luke 16, 19. It's a different Lazarus. Okay? Paradise, man. He was there seeing and hearing things he had never experienced before. And then he hears the voice of Jesus calling him to come back, to come forth. Imagine that. Four days in paradise. Seeing things, hearing things. Man, I'm sure his mind was overloaded. Who did he talk to? Who did he see? The glory of God. Who knows? All I know is the Lord called him back. And when he called him back, he was immediately back in his physical body. I can imagine the neurons in his brain began to fire off, sending messages down his spine. His heart starts up again, sending blood throughout the body and to all the organs. Then his lungs filled with air for the first time in four days. And then his eyes opened up. And what do they see? What are these clothes over my eyes? Where in the world am I? Then he sits up. And then he sees it. The, the stone is rolled away. He, as he makes his way out, who does he see? He sees Jesus. He sees his sisters. And he sees the crowds. I can only imagine what that scene must have been like for Lazarus. You're talking about brain damage. I can only imagine. And then we're told in verse 45 that many of the Jews believed after they saw the things Jesus did. Isn't that interesting? Yet not all believed. Many did believe, but not all believed. You would think this is a sure way uh, for people to believe. I mean, someone came back to life. And those that didn't went away to go inform the Pharisees of things that Jesus had done. Now, before we move on, there's something else I find interesting. Notice in verse 45, it doesn't say that many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary, but rather just Mary. You notice that? It doesn't, say, it doesn't include both. It just only states Mary. I find that interesting. I think it says, that a, lot, it says a lot about the ladies. Martha, it seems, is a woman whose temperament is caught up with being busy and working as if she doesn't have time for relationships. She's just busy, busy, busy serving. And we see her, as a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, where it says that, you know, Martha is so distracted, the King James says she's encumbered with serving, and she approached Jesus and says, Lord, I mean, look at me. Don't you care 
Look at my sister. She's doing nothing. She's sitting at your feet. Matter of fact, she's always at your feet. Go through the passages. Look at John. She is always found at Jesus' feet. And Martha is just busy working. She's hustling. She says, don't you care, Lord? Look at my sister. Can't you tell her to help me out? And Jesus answered it and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. The issue with Martha and with folks who are focused on working is, if the Lord is not the focus of their life, you know what they do? They begin to complain. They begin to say, hey, look, I'm doing all the work and no one's helping. That's a problem. That's a problem in ministry and that's a problem for me. Because if my eyes aren't on the Lord and my focus on the Lord, everyone else is a problem. I begin to say, hey, I'm the only one here. And I need to redirect my focus. Mary isn't of the same temperament. Again, which gives us insight as to the difference between the two. Even though they were the same family, they were different. Believe me, I have six kids. You would think they're made from the same, you know, mold, but they're not. They're all different. We scratch our heads sometimes. They're all different, you know, and they're all different temperaments. And the same is true of the church. We're all different, and we've all been given different gifts. Romans 12, verses 4 through 6 state this, For as we have many members in one body... But all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And then Paul goes on to identify what those gifts are. Now here, Martha appears behind the scenes while Mary seems to be more engaged with the people. And yet I think Martha is different since this event. I don't think she's the same. I think she's different. We find her in chapter 12, verse 2, serving the supper. And I have a strange uh, suspicion she's doing it with a different attitude now. Before, her service was a chore. It was work. She complained. But now she sees her service as a privilege. How do you serve the Lord? Are you serving Him at all? Well, you know, work's my ministry. No, it's not. You know how many times I hear that from people? And you know what? I've gotten pretty bold about that as I've gotten older. When I hear people say, well, work's my ministry. It is not your ministry. That's a place of witness. That's who you shine the light of Christ. But that's not your ministry. Whenever I read the scripture, ministry is in the church. I serve, we serve one another. That's ministry. So you're either in the game or you're just a spectator. And shame on you if you just sit in the sanctuary week by week. God has given you gifts to bless others. And maybe it's high time. Maybe you need to hear that tonight. That you begin to serve and be used, especially in these last days. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. Notice the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council. And that council in the Greek is Sanhedrin. So what is that word? It's, it's actually the word Sanhedrin. It's for uh, the word son, which means together or with, or hedra, the seat. 
It was considered the Great Council of Jerusalem. It consisted of 71 members. Imagine, if you will, scribes, Sadducees, elders, prominent high priestly families, and ultimately the high priest, which happened to be Caiaphas that year. They, they would um, preside over the most important cases before a tribunal. And here they're faced with a problem. <laughs> Jesus is the problem. Jesus is winning the hearts of the people. And they say, what shall we do with this man? Notice, he works many signs. They, they notice it. They don't deny it. By their own admission, they see the signs he is performing. And so here they are. They're convening 71 men who are trying to decide Jesus' fate. Rather than disguise, uh, discussing his validity. Or the signs. Or how does this line up with scripture? None of that is discussed. Imagine that. 71 prominent men don't go to the scripture. These are the religious leaders of their day. Now you can understand why the people were frustrated. You had Rome on one side, and then you had these religious leaders who were not representing God. The people were suffering. And notice in verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our, both our place and our nation. Notice that they feel threatened that eventually everyone will believe in him. And where will that leave them? But notice how they justify it. <laughs> the Romans will come and they'll take away our place and nation. This is something they're aware, well aware of as a nation, right? They, they understood what it was like to be uh, under the oppressive state of, of, uh, uh, of a country, like, like Babylon, for example. Remember, they were taken away. And so they were living with this type of fear. And furthermore, we're told in verse 49 that Caiaphas is a high priest at this time. Now, little, here's some information about Caiaphas. Prior to Caiaphas, there were three high priests who were appointed and quickly removed by uh, Valerius Gratus before he appointed Caiaphas. And it suggested that Caiaphas was pretty shrewd as a collaborator with the Romans. So much so that when Valerius Gratus he moves on, and he's ultimately replaced by Pontius Pilate. It appears that Pontius and Caiaphas have a working relationship. They have a mutual understanding. So Caiaphas remains high priest of the temple in Jerusalem from 18 AD to 36 AD, which is somewhat of a feat if you really uh, think about it, because that position was often filled by the Romans once a year. He did it for 18 years. What does that say? He knows, yeah, he knows people. He knows, he knows which way uh, the pendulum swings. Caiaphas was in charge of the temple treasury. He controlled the temple police. He controlled the lower-ranking priests and the attendants, and he ruled over the Sanhedrin. He was a top dog. He had incredible power. And for those of you who don't know, Annas, the other high priest, was his father-in-law, and he served again before him. And he got five of his relatives appointed to that office. Sounds like a good family business, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, in John chapter 18, verse 13, we see Annas playing a major part in Jesus' trial, an indication that he may have advised or even controlled Caiaphas even after Annas was deposed. Now, 
as a Sadducee, I don't know if you know this, but Caiaphas did not believe in the resurrection. So you can imagine when he heard the shock that this man had raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, they don't believe in raising the dead. Got to get rid of that problem. That's a problem. We need to get rid of that. So he needs to destroy anything that would conflict with his belief system rather than investigating whether these things were so. You notice that? He didn't say, you know what? Let's go see if this is real. No, we need to eliminate the problem. Later, we're going to discover that Caiaphas was not interested in truth, was he? His trial of Jesus violated Jewish law and was rigged to produce a guilty verdict. Perhaps he saw Jesus as a menace to Roman order, but he also may have seen this new message as a threat to his family's rich way of life. And believe me, he was a wealthy man. And he did it on the backs of innocent people. People who came to the temple. He exploited the people. Caiaphas betrayed God and his people and used the Romans as a means to an end. Again, compromise. And that's what compromise does, isn't it? Do not compromise the word of God. You say, well, I'm not a high priest. doesn't matter. You possess the word of God. You could violate your own conscience. You can compromise those things that clearly God is showing you, even tonight. Don't do it. You will live with regret. I tell you, all the money that you can get, it's not worth it. And so they reason that if this problem isn't addressed, they're in danger of losing their place and the nation. The thing they feared, in fact, happened to them, didn't it, in 70 A.D.? When Titus Vespasian came in and leveled the city, they couldn't get around it. And now the Sadducees and Pharisees didn't exactly, they didn't get along. They often treat each other with disdain because of their theological differences. Matter of fact, Josephus says that Caiaphas was arrogant. The Sadducees just looked down at the Pharisees. So you can imagine this, this power play that was taking place. And you almost get a sense of this in the next verse. Notice in verse 49, he says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. And you can almost hear him talk down to them. You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Of course, he's referring to the Gentiles. Interesting prophecy, considering that this wasn't Caiaphas's intent. He didn't know he was prophesying. He didn't know God was, was using his mouth to prophesy. He says, it is, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. And the word... For, there in the Greek, is a, is a word, the Greek word, hooper. And that word, it means in place of. It's a substitutionary word. Jesus was going to be a substitute. And he's going to die for the nation. And he had no idea that God was putting these words in his mouth. He was, in fact, prophesying the death of Jesus. And not just for them, but for the whole world. Now you might be asking yourself, how is it that God caused Caiaphas to prophesy out of a position of disobedience? Well, there are actually a few folks who prophesied 
from a place of disobedience to the scriptures. We have Saul. Yeah, he prophesied in the place of disobedience. And you have Balaam, right? Both of them prophesied out of a place of disobedience. So, so Caiaphas, in his inflated ego and pride, says, you guys know nothing. And prophesies in his ignorance what the substitutionary death Jesus would accomplish. Didn't even know it. Didn't know it. Then he says here in 53, Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. I, I read that verse, I go, that's just cold. To me, it just, it just resonates as being cold. Notice the decision the Sanhedrin made. John, up to this point, has never referred the miracles that Jesus performs as miracles. He calls them signs, because contained in each of these signs was a lesson. And the function of a sign is to give direction. And here we've arrived to the, one of the greatest of them. Jesus calling Lazarus out of the grave. The sign of the resurrection. And again, just a few days from the Passover. And yet, violating their own conscience and the law, they had already condemned Jesus to death. I mean, without even talking to him. Without having to hear him. They've already, they've already given him the sentence of death. And that, that's something that John is writing about and he wants us to see. They took counsel together as to how they would condemn him to death. And as I read this, I started to think, initially, it wasn't Rome at all. Think about that. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't the corrupt hand of Rome or the heavy-handedness of Rome. It was the Jewish religious leaders. He was a problem. Now, don't get me wrong. The Romans were equally guilty. But they're the ones who kicked it all off. They primed the pump. And notice here in verse 54, it says, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. The word Ephraim means fruitful. And it's about 12 miles from Jerusalem. And I wonder what that was like for Jesus and his disciples as they broke away from the crowds, as they laid low, knowing that his time on earth was, was soon at hand. And I wonder if those times were intimate times. And I wonder if Jesus was giving specific teachings as he sat with them and ministered to them, knowing Passover's coming, knowing the cross is coming. And I, I think about that. And sometimes I think, gosh, what... You know, I think we all think about that. What would it be like to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear him speak? His time is drawing near. And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover. Notice, to do what? To purify themselves. This could, of course, this was, of course, uh, the springtime. And notice they went up early to purify themselves. The ceremonial cleansing. You know, in our trip to Israel, I'll never forget this. We're there at the temple steps. And just south of the temple set, uh, steps, they've discovered these baptismals. But they're not baptismals in the way we think of baptismal. It, they, were, they were carved out of rock. There's about 48 of them. They're called mikvahs. And what you would do in, in that region of the world, you know, water and bread were like, that's life. Okay? 
And when, when they, I remember the, the, our tour guy was telling us, when they saw a spring, that was considered living water because it's alive, it's moving. You know, that was their mindset. And because water, again, was so precious. So here you are as a Jew. You enter this mikvah, and it was basically uh, uh, these set of stairs that came down into water. And again, this idea of living water, you went down, stepped in, walked in, you waited around, and then you come up to the side, and you were cleansed, you were purified. And then you make your way up the temple stairs, up to the temple. And so to them, you were cleansed with living water. And, and I could just see this process here. You know, here, here are these Jewish men purifying themselves, going up into the temple. Notice verse 56. And they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as he stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Notice, notice what they're thinking. They know everyone is looking for him. And they reason among themselves that he would not come up to the feast knowing he was a wanted man. He was a fugitive. Yet we know Jesus is not in fear of man. He's, he is walking hand in hand with the Father. He is walking according to his time frame and not man's time frame. He's not walking in the fear of man. Verse 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that he might seize him. The way this verse is constructed, it implies that a public announcement had been made. No doubt in the temple precinct and the surrounding areas, that if anyone knew where Jesus was, that he should report it so that the religious leaders might seize him and arrest him. So it's within this context that the folks are saying among themselves, surely he wouldn't dare come up. Don't they know they're going to they're gonna cart him away? They're going to arrest him. Do you think he's really going to come to the Passover? Interesting question. So we see, again, this first part, Jesus is wanted. Now we're going to see Jesus is worshipped in this next chapter. Notice it says here in verse 1, Then six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. This was the town of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. This is where they're from. So he, he returns back to Bethany in spite of, the, of arrest. He's about two miles from Jerusalem, six days from the Passover. And here, John wants to let us know he's returned. And upon his return, verse 2 is going to tell us, that they prepare a supper for him. They prepare a supper. And you may also want to take note that this isn't the same story found in Luke chapter 7. In Luke 7, they're in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Here, they are no doubt in the house of Simon the leper. You can see this in Matthew 26, 6. In Luke 7, they're in the region of Galilee. Here, they're in Judea, close to Jerusalem. In Luke 7, this woman had a sinful reputation. In John's account, we're, we're not told of that. In Luke, she washed the feet of Jesus with her tears and wiped with her hair his, his feet. In John, we don't see that. We don't see this woman in tears, and she's not using her tears to wash the feet of Jesus. In Luke's account, Simon says, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. Then Jesus begins to tell Simon how since he had walked into the house, he offered no waters for his feet, 
but she has washed his feet with her tears. He hadn't given him no, he hadn't kissed him, but this woman has not ceased kissing his feet since he's come in. Again, no mention of this in John's account. Two different accounts. But very close. I mean, you see that and you read it for the first time, you're thinking, is this the same account? And it is not. And notice verse 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. What is she doing? Serving. She served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Mark 14.3 tells us that this is the home of Simon the leper. Now, we have to assume that Jesus healed him of his leprosy. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in the house, and they wouldn't be either. Because lepers lived in a leper colony. They didn't live in a house. Okay? But what's interesting is this group that's set before us. You have the disciples, you have Lazarus, you have Martha, Mary, Simon the leper, and then you have the crowds, those who followed. And notice they had prepared a supper for the Lord. And notice who's, again, working hard, serving everyone dinner, Martha. Again, I think she's a different person. I think she is doing it with an incredible joy. Also take note who's seated there at the table. And notice who John is focused on. Lazarus. He's focused on Lazarus. And notice, he's still alive. Okay? And John makes it a point of his that he is there seated at the table. And I wonder what his outlook has been since he's been brought back from the dead. And I wonder what kind of questions were fielded to him. What they must have asked him. Could you imagine? So, uh, Lazarus, where did you go? Um, what was it like where you went? Um, what did you see? Or who did you see? I mean, let me ask you. What kind of questions would you ask? If Lazarus was before you. What did you see? I know I'd be asking those questions, wouldn't you? And Lazarus doesn't say nothing. He doesn't say a word. And this is what kills me. It's, it's one of those on the road to Emmaus situations where you know a conversation took place, but it's not recorded for us. And he says nothing. Not even when he was sick and dying, there's nothing recorded that Lazarus said anything. Also in verse 9, the crowds weren't there just to see Jesus. It tells us they were there also to see Lazarus. Notice verse 9, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, I'll see about this. If Pastor Diego died in the operating table at Huntington Hospital, and you heard how he came back from the dead, you know, after four days, and upon his resurrection, he's going to be at church on Sunday. How many people do you think would show up at church? I wouldn't. <laughs> It's like, oh, so Diego, what did you see? Or, you know, the only mistake God made was he didn't name Argentina heaven. That's the only thing I'd say. <laughs> but I can only imagine, you know, uh, if, if that were the case, I think the place would be packed out. We want to know what he saw. I guarantee you. We, what did you see? What did you hear? What was it like? Because I think all of us are interested in what's behind the curtain. All of us are. Even the atheist. Now, it's interesting to me that here's a crowd. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have social media. It was all word of mouth. And the crowd swelled. 
Now, while everyone is fixated on Jesus or Lazarus, Lazarus is there. He's not fixated on the crowds. He's fixated on Jesus. And I could just see him there looking at Jesus across the table, knowing who he is. That he is more than what everyone else perceives him to be. And I, I think Lazarus is still in awe, knowing he is more privileged than anyone else uh, before him. He still probably hasn't gotten over his four-day experience. Would you? Could you imagine? And here he is, different, no doubt, from this experience. And then Mary, verse 3 tells us, took a pound of very costly oil of spinknard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. This was Mary's way of worshiping the Lord. Martha's way of worshiping the Lord was serving Him. And I think they were doing two different things. And He was equally blessed by their act of worship. And I think this is John's way of indicating to us that when we worship the Lord, there's no competition. We're not competing. As I worship the Lord, you worship the Lord, you could be serving, I could be giving. We're both worshiping the Lord. There's no competition. And I think He put this here for that specific reason. Martha's serving, she's worshiping. She's pouring oil. And she's anointing his feet. Both equally accepted. And I think it's very important for us to grasp this idea because I see this in ministry. When we serve in the energy of the flesh, which produces no good thing. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 4, where Cain and Abel are present, and they make their offering to the Lord. Right? Right? And there they are. And the problem is not the offering. The problem is a heart issue. Your your heart is not in the right place. Just like Martha's heart wasn't right in Luke chapter 10. Here in in Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, it says, Abel was brought, I'm sorry, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And so the Lord came to Cain. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Notice he says this, very important. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Had nothing to do with the sacrifice. Had to do with the heart. It's a heart issue. If the heart's not right, it will not be accepted. Our service unto the Lord, if it's not done right. I mean, I could do all these things, all these great things. But if my heart's not right, God doesn't even acknowledge it. Wasted effort. Proverbs 16.3 states, Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. Notice, we we don't commit our works unto man. Even though we might serve one another, my focus is to commit my works unto the Lord, and my thoughts will be established. Good thoughts. He's going to put good thoughts, not carnal ones. And I'll serve with a joy. Do me a favor. Rafi, can you turn the switch there? Thank you. My study can't be that bad. You guys are falling asleep. (laughs) Too warm. Now also notice that Mary took a pound of spinknard, which was very costly. 
indicating that his family may have been well off. You say, how so? Well, down in verse 5, we're going to hear from Judas that the oil could have been sold for over 300 denarii. 300 denarii, which is equivalent to a year's worth of wages. You say, well, what is that? Well, in today's economy, what is that? Like $25,000, $35,000, right? So here she is. Uh, so this couldn't be your average family. Who holds a flask of twenty-five dollars to $35,000 of oil? You know, I just thought about the Kardashians, right? She just got robbed. Yep, a couple of rocks, right? So this wasn't your average family. Spinknard is a flowering plant of the Valerian family, which is found at the foot of the Himalayas. You're talking about an elevation of three to 5,000 feet. Okay? So you can understand why it was expensive. You had to go extract it, go get it, and deliver it. Far away. Very expensive. It was so expensive that it was placed in these alabaster cruises and then sealed. And the only way you broke it is when you broke the neck of the cruise. Archaeologists have discovered some of these cruises with Spinknard still in them. Spinknard was used as a base for perfume or, or for medicinal purposes. And if you're going to use the oil, you would use it for a special occasion. And this was a special occasion. You know, what I find interesting, um, and note this for me, is Mary didn't use this on, on her brother's death. I thought about that. I'm like, hey, what about me? <laughs> I'm the one who died. You just put spices, but you don't hear that. And you don't see that. She didn't use that for him. I thought that was kind of funny. But I think um, she had been listening to the Lord. And she reserved this, this perfume just for him. How do I know this? Well, because, remember, he had been talking to his disciples, right? How he's going to be scourged. How he's going to be lifted up. How he was going to die on the cross. And I think she was listening while the disciples, you know, they're always distracted, weren't they? And down in verse 7, it tells us that she had kept the speaknard for the day of his burial. So I think, again, she was very keen and locked in to what he had been saying. And Jesus is revealing the secrets of her heart. It would be great if I went back to John, huh? Still stuck in Genesis. Mary, she takes his costly oil, opens the container, and begins to anoint the feet of Jesus. And then she also does something very interesting. She lays down her hair in public. And this is something you didn't do in that culture. It was frowned upon. The only time you'd lay your hair, your hair down was in the privacy of your own home or with your husband. And what does she do? She gets down on her hands and knees, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Jesus understands her act of devotion and worship. And, then it's, and it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of spinknard. So imagine the scene. You're there. Supper has been served. Men are reclining at the table. And Mary here breaks the top of the, the alabaster flask. And she anoints the feet of Jesus, filling the house with this, the scent of the soil. And I'm sure when that happened, I think all the noise in the house stopped. I think it all stopped. I think as he saw her just begin to wipe his feet and to pour this oil, I think it was quite a scene. 
All the attention fell on Mary as they saw her act of worship. Again, what an amazing scene. There are no tears mentioned. Notice that? In the other scenario, she's weeping. There's no tears here. And I think as she's doing this, I wonder if Lazarus actually shared with her. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. And I think she's even more convinced as to who he is. I mean, as a, I mean her brother's alive. That's, that's enough right there. But I wouldn't doubt that Lazarus may have shared some things that he experienced. Her worship permeated the whole home. And it wasn't tied to what she said, but what she did. We all cannot talk a great game. But let's see your, your words in action. Let's see your words in action. How do you worship outside the church? Do you worship in your home? At work? Do you know as believers we emit a fragrance as well? Our lives should be an open act of devotion to the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Which one are you? Are you an aroma? Are you walking after the Lord? Do people, can they smell? Can they smell you? You say, that sounds kind of weird. Well, you heard the, the saying, right? Oh, he stinks. We shouldn't. We shouldn't stink. Well, you don't understand, friend. I, I can't talk about the Lord at work. I'm not talking about witnessing in your, in your workplace. You're ripping your, your employer off if you're there sharing the Lord. But you should be a witness where you work. People should see your witness where you're at. I'm talking about having a godly attitude, pouring out uh, that others may receive. You know, are you, are you laughing at the same jokes they're laughing at? Are you stealing? You see, am I being godly? And people take note of that. And, and Bless you. And here's Mary. Imagine pouring out thousands of dollars of speaknard and the scent fills the house. And look, sometimes our, our act of devotion or your act of devotion might be criticized by those who claim to be believers. And we're going to see that in the next few verses. Next, we have the first recorded words of Judas Iscariot. And notice what he says in verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Now, John, again, remember, he is writing as a 90-year-old man. He's writing many years later and he's recounting this specific dinner, revealing how Judas held the money that he was a thief. And no one knew he was a thief. And no one knew he was a traitor till much later. And he said, well, how do I know this? The next chapter. Right? They're sitting there, sitting around the table, up in the upper room. They're eating. What does Jesus say? One of you is going to betray me. And what was their conversation? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And they all sat there perplexed, looking at each other, wondering if one of them was a betrayer. So John didn't know. 
And I'm sure as John is penning, you know, he's penning these words, I could just see him shaking his head. We didn't know. We didn't know that he was a betrayer. We didn't know he was a thief. He didn't know. And here we find Judas rebuking this woman for dumping thousands of dollars onto the feet of Jesus. He's saying, do you know how much good would have come out of this? How much food we could have fed the poor with? How much medicine we could have bought? And it all sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? It sounds so good. And as a matter of fact, we know later on, actually, no, we know from other passages in Matthew and Mark that they chime in. The other disciples go, yeah, she's throwing all that away. We can use that. I mean, after all, we walk the fields and eat the grain, the, uh, the heads of grain. And sometimes we eat some bread and we have to borrow fish to eat. And we could have used that. But it's being thrown away. Thousands of dollars being poured out. And so they criticize her as well. All these thousands of dollars poured out into the floor. Now you might, now before we say, how could they? I'll tell you what, if you're there and you saw that happen in real time, you probably would be just as critical. Just as critical. Again, it all sounded so reasonable. And it tells us, again, John is telling us that Judas had no interest in the poor. This man was a thief. And not only was he a thief, he held on to the purse. And I can, again, see just John as he's paying his word. I can't believe this. We got duped. Notice verse 7. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you don't always have. Jesus stands up and he defends her. And I wonder how he said what he said. Was he sharp? Did he say, hey, leave her alone? I wonder what type of tone he used to speak um, to the disciples and to Judas. You know, and, you know, if you have any kids at home, you understand. You know, I'll say, hey, guys, you know, knock it off. Or, hey, knock it off. All of a sudden, they understand. It's to get their attention. And I wonder how Jesus, how he said it. Hey, hey, leave her alone. She's doing a good thing. There's nothing wrong with what she's doing. And, and now listen to what he's, he's saying here. He says, the poor you have with you always, but me, you do not always have. And as, I think there's a, as a church, there's a time and place for everything. We ought to care for those in need, especially to those in the church. You know, Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10 says, They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also am eager to do. We're to do the practical things in ministry. And we, we, do, we do those things here at Calvary Child Pasadena. I think of all the medical outreaches uh, that take place here. And some of you go. You know, Tony organizes uh, the trips to Mexico or the Philippines. And they serve the less fortunate in the name of Christ. And here Jesus says, But me, you do not have always. I, I believe what he's saying here is there are things in ministry where you only have one shot at. And in this case, there, this is one of them. Those windows of opportunity in my life and yours may only occur once. So he's saying, be wise. You may miss it. And it doesn't have to be the pouring out of expensive oil. It could be the opportunity to bless someone with the moment, with your time. Now, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, this story I heard uh, not too long ago. Father, daughter, they're traveling on an interstate and... They pull over to the gas station, and as they pull over, the father jumps out uh, of the car to go pay 
um, the attendant for the gas. And um, so his daughter comes out of the car and she begins pumping the fuel. And, and then his daughter sees a woman there with her daughter. And what, unbeknownst to um, her father was the Lord was impressing on her heart to give her money. But she resisted. She's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And so, you know, her dad comes back, gets in the car, get in the car, and they drive off. And she feels the guilt already, the conviction. And all of a sudden, her dad, her dad goes, uh, sweetie, I said, what's that? He goes, uh, I think you may want to stop and pull over. What's the matter? Well, the pump nozzle was still in the car when they drove off. So says, we need to go back. And so as they drive back, she's sitting in the car, and she's like, Dad, hands over a $100 bill, says, give that to that lady. Why? Which I didn't tell you was the Lord had been impressing in my heart to give to this woman, and I didn't do it. You sure? Yes, please. I, I can't do it. I'm already, I'm already too embarrassed. So here's Dad. He says, I get all the credit. I go out there, and I give this woman $100. And the woman says, you're Christian? And he goes, yes, ma'am, I am. Why? Well, the strange thing is I have no money for gas, and we're going a long way, and the Lord impressed upon me to wait here and that he will provide a window of opportunity. That's the window of opportunity. We never know. Now, again, it's not, it's not, it could be thousands of dollars. It could be a hundred dollars or it could be a moment of your time. It's an act of worship unto the Lord. And what she did will be remembered because she loved her Lord and, and the Lord had put that in her heart to anoint him for his burial. And the things we do, believe me, they're minute. God is the one who provides for us. But he wants to use us. I mean, you know who, who you are, and you know the people that are involved in your life, and you know what those needs are. And if the Lord is directing you, maybe you ought to listen. And it'll free you up. I guarantee you. Let's pray. Lord, we again come to you. And Lord, we thank you for these passages, Lord, as we see your heart. And we see how, Lord, you deal with each and every one of us individually. And you see our, all the things uh, set before us. And, and Lord, how uh, we're to deal with those things. And you give us opportunities, Lord. You give us that window to bless others. And yet there are times, Lord, where we don't. And, Lord, if we failed in those areas, Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, help us in our weakness. Help us to hear your voice. Lord, that we would be better servants unto you. And so, Lord, we just commit these things, these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you have any... Uh...